Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Samuel Hedditch. Samuel Hedditch was a diplomatic technician in the early 1620s. He was responsible for ensuring that the negotiations between Count Gondomar in London and Count Olivares back in Madrid were always secure, and that King James's court were only able to read these communications on occasion. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you'd like me to lie about you, head on over to Patreon, where you can support this show monetarily in return for some pretty sweet perks. More on that later, but for now, enjoy episode 32 of the Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to the Thirty Years' War. So the last time we looked at the year 1624, and we assessed the different political and societal trends which were then impacting British foreign policy. We learned that something as simple as a play, a game at chess, was enough to inflame passions and increase resentment on both sides, and that King James, even though he didn't wish to be beholden to Parliament, to promise anyone all that much, or to launch any war against Spain, he did want to make some kind of military intervention into the Palatinate in the name of his son-in-law and daughter. It had seemed for a time that England was Frederick's greatest hope for restoration, either by diplomacy or force of arms. By the end of 1624, though, the old ideas of marriage and compromise with the Emperor and Bavaria had been dropped, and it appeared as though warfare would be the only means through which Frederick's wishes would be fulfilled. At the same time, just as England had been affected by certain trends, so too had Europe stirred, to the point that, by and large, the Protestant powers seemed more open to the idea of a coordinated strategy in the Elector Palatine's name. New diplomatic opportunities, most of all in Denmark, seemed to be there for the taking, and with big promises and even greater ambitions, it was entirely likely that the French, English and Dutch might join this new agreement, the Hague Alliance, in the near future. In this episode, we'll trace the rise and fall of this alliance, what Frederick did to further it, what English diplomacy can tell us about it, and what we can learn about diplomacy in the early 17th century from the Jacobean example. Furthermore, we will also take some time to reflect upon what we've experienced so far, and how the conflict had been so enlarged since its inception seven years earlier. All of these points will prepare us nicely for the next great part of this series, when Denmark gets involved in the war, and everything changes. If you're ready, let's begin, as I take you to the summer of 1625. 
By summer 1625, Count Gondomar was an old and frail man. After having served his country for so many years from London, Gondomar's return to Spain in spring 1622 didn't mean that his term of service had ended. The old count was simply too well-travelled, too experienced and too knowledgeable for King Philip IV of Spain to allow his talents to go to waste. Gondomar served instead as something of an advisor on Spanish foreign affairs with a distinct expertise in English matters. In June 1625, Gondomar felt confident enough to write a stunning letter to Olivares, Olivares being the leading light of Spanish government and the royal favourite at the time. The letter was so stunning because it captured the theme of Spanish history, which has since become accepted as automatic and inevitable. The decline, or as Gondomar himself put it, save a todo e fondo, the ship is going down. Perhaps it was the recent failure of the Anglo-Spanish marriage negotiations. Perhaps it was the successful and highly dangerous conclusion of alternative Anglo-French marriage negotiations. Perhaps it was the fact that the war against Frederick in Germany never seemed to end. Or perhaps it was the looming threat of an anti-Hausberg coalition, which gathered steam following the death of King James in March 1625. Perhaps, again, it was simply the dismal state of Spanish finances. Whatever the cause for Gondomar's gloomy correspondence, he met with a surprisingly receptive response from Olivares. Olivares accepted the former ambassador's concerns, but he then added some upbeat reminders of his own. How many elder statesmen had pronounced the decline of their homeland since records began, and how many times did that state flourish for many centuries after such a pronouncement? There was no value to be had in lamenting the end of Spain. Indeed, surely there were things to take solace from, even on the strategic level. Interestingly, Olivares then changed his tone somewhat by adopting a more realistic and, some might say, downcast interpretation of Spain's position in the world. From this, the Spaniard began, I do not mean to say that these are happy times. Nor did Olivares attempt to claim that things were better before Philip IV's reign. However, it seems Olivares was attempting to look on the bright side in summer 1625. There had at least been no rebellions in Spain, no mutinies in the armies, and some progress had been made in the war against the Dutch, with the symbolic Dutch fortress town of Breda shortly due to fall. Olivares finished up with his letter to Gondomar by saying, And I conclude by saying that I do not consider a recitation of the state of affairs to be a useful exercise, because it cannot be concealed from those who know it at first hand. To make them despair of the remedy can only weaken their resolution, while it cannot fail to have adverse effects on everyone else. As far as I am concerned, your words can do no harm. I know the situation, I lament it, and it grieves me, but I will allow no impossibility to weaken my zeal or diminish my concern, for, as the minister with paramount obligations, it is for me to die unprotesting, chained to my oar, until not a single fragment is left in my hands. But when such things are said where many can hear them, Wanton damage is caused. This striking correspondence between these two very high-up officials and the resignation with which Olivares seemed to greet the situation provides us with a window into how contemporaries, even in the highest positions of power in Spain, viewed their empire's decline. The Spanish were greatly occupied by the task of keeping up appearances 
which explains why, even when past its prime, Spanish power was still very highly rated, and as we have seen in the English case, feared and loathed in equal measure. There would come a time when it would no longer be possible to keep up appearances, but for the time being, Spanish power remained a vital element of the Habsburg War effort. For a German, Protestant or any other power to combat the Habsburg Colossus, they would also have to contend with the military, financial and political might of Spain. The two branches of the Habsburg family were irreversibly tied together, for better or worse, for the duration of the conflict. This indeed ensured that many lesser powers had been scared away from the mission of resistance, and that stronger powers refused to take up this mantle alone. Olivares and Gondomar clearly believed that any sense of a golden age had passed, but in spite of these observations, Spain's ability to project its power into the Holy Roman Empire guaranteed for the moment that the Thirty Years' War must continue. It was only once this ability on Spain's part had fractured and that she had been forced to retreat that the Habsburgs would display that vulnerability which enabled its enemies to take advantage and push the Emperor back in turn. The Thirty Years' War is thus impossible to understand unless we view it as something more than a war pursued and maintained by the Holy Roman Emperor. It was instead a war for wide-ranging, interconnected, mutually dependent interests. Spanish fortunes would dip, Austria's would rise, and vice versa, but until both Austria and Spain were on the ropes, peace could not return to Europe. When we thus come to the issue of creating an anti habsburg coalition of some significance, a mission adopted with real purpose from 1624, it is possible to see fear and hesitation mix with the ambition and determination of the Allies, as they contemplated the totality of the conflict which would surely await taking on both branches of the Habsburgs at once. War with Emperor Ferdinand and the Austrian Habsburg influence in Germany also meant a war against Spanish resources and influence, if not also her soldiers. Spain maintained a large army in the Spanish Netherlands, which did battle against the Dutch, and her efforts had been greatly aided by the absorption of the Palatinate along the Rhine. The Palatine question surrounded France with a Spanish fence, but it also deepened the Spanish investment in Germany, something which Spanish statesmen believed their country could ill afford. The Dutch war, after all, was more than enough to occupy Spanish attentions. The Palatine occupation had also torpedoed Anglo-Spanish marital alliance plans, which in turn meant England was much more likely to join itself to the Dutch and French. Spanish expenditure in the Palatinate and later in northern Italy dangerously undermined its Dutch war effort. More disastrously, the unexpectedly lengthy nature of the war in Germany and the dispossessed elector's tireless efforts to keep his cause alive in the relevant courts of Europe meant that Spain would not be freed from these extra entanglements any time soon. When we ask why the Thirty Years' War failed to end with the defeat of Frederick's forces at the White Mountain Battle in November 1620, or why any of the other numerous military defeats which followed, or even from some diplomatic negotiation which might settle the matter, the answer is of course more complex than an issue of heavy Spanish involvement in Germany. Instead, Spanish involvement in Germany was a symptom of the overall problem. To help their Austrian cousins, and to advance Spain's strategic interests, the Palatinate had been seized without any due consideration of the consequences that might follow. Madrid had apparently not counted on King James's determination to restore his son-in-law's lands, nor had Frederick's stubborn obstinacy 
been factored into the equation. As a result of their Palatine occupation, Spain sacrificed the martial alliance with England, which was arguably the best way to keep its enemies apart and to undermine English support for the Dutch. Though the consequences were not worse for Spain, had less to do with its capacity for meeting formidable coalitions, and more to do with the inability of these coalitions to cooperate and form a united strategy. In early 1625, despite much optimism for Frederick's cause, cracks were already appearing in the façade which would play no small role in the great triumph of the Holy Roman Emperor by 1629. As much as they feared the combined powers and influence of the Habsburg dynasty, as much as they loathed the injustice of the Emperor's creeping monopoly and the Empire's constitution and powers, as much as Protestants lamented the progress of the Counter-Reformation, the time was not yet right for a proper fusing of allied interests which could be directed against the two Habsburg branches. When this fusing didn't last materialise, it spelled doom for Vienna and Madrid, but until it came, neither the Holy Roman Emperor nor the King of Spain could afford to back down. As the Habsburgs closed ranks, so too did their rivals. In June 1624, with their defensive measures falling apart, the Dutch renewed their alliance with the French in the Treaty of Compiègne. Through this agreement, the Dutch agreed to remain at war with Spain for at least another three years, and King Louis XIII's administration approved an immediate loan of 480,000 thalers for the desperate Dutch, with the promise of further instalments in the future. Around the same time, France renewed its alliances with both Venice and Savoy. This reinforced those northern arms of Italy against Habsburg encroachment, which was correctly anticipated to happen in the near future. Further developments in France boded well for the anti-Habsburg alliance. In August of 1624, a newcomer by the name of Cardinal Richelieu was appointed France's foreign minister, a position which he was to retain for the guts of two decades. Capturing the conflict inherent in French foreign policy at this time, Richelieu commented that We can neither contribute to the restoration of Frederick because of our Catholic faith, nor deny it without being reproached by our allies. The war in Germany remained a thorny issue because Maximilian of Bavaria, supported by the papacy, seemed open to some form of agreement with the French, but to balance their relationship with Frederick and Frederick's allies, Maximilian's new electoral titles couldn't be recognised. Faced with these difficult choices, Richelieu focused on North Italy instead, and he attempted to cut out the Habsburg legs by occupying critical Alpine passes with Swiss assistance. This move, as we'll examine later, was part of the wider plan to prepare for war with Spain, but it had an insignificant impact on the Protestant cause. The French were becoming more diplomatically active, but France was not yet prepared to officially enter the war on Frederick's side. As a result, Ernst of Mansfeld's sponsored adventure to the continent floundered, a development which represented King James's last effective effort to restore his son-in-law, and not a very realistic effort at that. God give him constancy and resolve, was how Frederick attempted to pray for Mansfeld's success, but the task proved far outside the realm of Mansfeld's capabilities. Upon landing at long last in the Dutch Republic in January 1625, his English soldiers became much reduced by desertion and disease. By the end of March 1625, Christian of Brunswick, who had joined the hopeful army in a bid to salvage some measure of his shattered reputation, 
was forced to conclude that Mansfeld's force was unfit for entering Germany in any capacity. It was only shortly after learning of his army's defeat from the twin evils of disease and want of funds that King James himself succumbed to a disease on the 27th of March 1625. James's death represented not only the end of an era in English foreign policy, but also the removal of the greatest stumbling block to a determined British intervention in the German lands. The dispossessed Elector Palatine certainly recognised this, and after expressing his grief, added perceptively that Nothing consoles us more than the new king's good affection towards us and the common cause. King Charles I was indeed better disposed towards his sister and brother-in-law's struggle than his late father had been, but the hopes for an English rescue would not exactly materialise in spite of these hopes. Shortly after the Franco-Dutch defensive alliance had been formalised under the Treaty of Compiègne in June 1624, King James had followed suit in the middle of that month with a defensive alliance of his own. As we've seen though, the alliance floundered over the tricky question, for James at least, of the Spanish, and since he refused to attack the Spanish, the Dutch negotiators quickly lost heart in the English stance. Furthermore, by sending Mansfeld's ill-fated expedition to the Republic, the king effectively spent what little resources he had. Not until late 1625, with a new king and a hopefully invigorated parliament, could the British contribution be properly made alongside their Dutch ally. The Dutch, having lost Breda in the summer of 1625, were more than eager to strike back at their Spanish enemy, and the new stadtholder Frederick Henry was equally determined not to begin his tenure in office with any further disasters. It should be added that an Anglo-Spanish war was technically being fought from 1625 to 1630, but in reality this conflict contained small, insignificant ventures which cost more than they granted, and it served only to foment dissatisfaction at home. One example of such a venture was the Anglo-Dutch naval expedition against Cadiz, which was sent in the first week of November 1625. The enterprise began in high spirits, its planners envisioned an attack on Spain and Europe, and then in the Indies. Owing to shortages in money and poor coordination, though, the initiative failed to wrest any significant dividends. This was a dark time for the Dutch as well, and perhaps the only silver lining for that beleaguered republic was found in the fact that, after the capture of Breda, the Spanish were so exhausted by that 11-month siege, they refrained from undertaking any other military action for the remainder of 1625. Frederick Henry, the Dutch stadtholder, similarly entered winter quarters relatively early as a result in that year. As they rested, the Dutch and English, supported by French monies, would have to recoup their losses and, in league with Frederick, plan for a new campaign for 1626. As we'll discover later, these plans were aided by the determined diplomatic expansion of the Palatine scope into Scandinavia, where the kings of Denmark and Sweden awaited. Before we go any further with this narrative history, friends, I want to let you know about something in case you weren't aware. First of all, When Diplomacy Fails has a Facebook group, and if you would like to join us for some fascinating historical conversations and talk to yours truly about different historical events that occurred on this day X amount of years ago, then When Diplomacy Fails group is definitely the place for you. 
If you weren't aware, you can actually click on a link in the description of this episode to be brought right there. You'll answer a few questions to make sure you're not a robot or king of spamming, and then you'll be allowed in. It's as simple as that. I'd love for you to join us. We recently passed a thousand members, and I'm really excited to see how this community has grown since I first set it up many years before. I am, it has to be said, mostly focused on the Facebook group, because Facebook pages are really not what they used to be, unless you're an enormous corporation with tons and tons of money, and Facebook likes you for that reason. When diplomacy fails, is Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Not a corporation with loads and loads of money, but we do have some wonderful history friends behind us powering this podcast forward. And those lovely history friends like to make their voices heard in Facebook, yes, but also when giving us reviews on iTunes, also known now as Apple Podcasts. If you'd give us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be super appreciated. If you have an iPhone, you can do it fairly easily and intuitively. So for that reason, I expect all history friends with iPhones to follow suit and drop us a review, thereby increasing the algorithm, thereby bringing us to more and more history friends. I really have appreciated all you've done for this show so far, and I know that leaving reviews is a bit of a pain. But free things like this, whether it's joining the group and spreading the discussion, or leaving a review and spreading the word, can really help news of when diplomacy fails get brought around. This is, of course, the same message I've been sending to you guys for basically nine years now. Only by word of mouth can podcasts really get out there in a meaningful way. So why not add some of the words from your own mouth to that quest right now? Thanks, guys, and enjoy the rest of this show. The stories of the Danish and Swedish intervention in the Thirty Years' War are, of course, both fascinating in their own right, but before we look at them, we have to tie up some loose ends in this narrative. From April to December 1625, 
the goal of Palatine foreign policy was to capitalise upon the hostility which was felt towards the Habsburgs in various quarters, and to gather as many powers as possible together for the strike against the Emperor and the King of Spain. Frederick himself put it best when he said, The principal goal is to halt the ambitious designs of Austria and Spain, and to reconcile the affairs of Germany in their entirety, with the restitution of the Palatinate, and of that which it depends on. Such statements underline the fact that the Elector Palatine wasn't fighting a religious war. At its heart, the historian Brennan Purcell reasons, the war was a dynastic one, a fact demonstrated by the incorporation of so many religiously different powers, from the Calvinist Transylvanians to the Muslim Turks to Catholic France to Lutheran Denmark. If any army could be forged from these powers, then Frederick wished to exit his exile in The Hague and join its course to serve the motherland and the common cause, as he put it. Yet Frederick had learned his lessons from before. The disintegration of Mansfeld's army had demonstrated clearly that unless a force was well supported diplomatically, militarily and financially, its chance for success was hopeless. Frederick was eager to lean on his brother-in-law, the new King of Britain, Charles, to lead such an army, and he emphasised Mansfeld's failure as a stain on both his and Charles's honour to get his point across. Both England and Frederick needed to be redeemed if anyone could be expected to believe in and follow their cause, and for this to happen, King Charles had to commit himself fully to the task of fighting Frederick's enemies. There could be no half-measures, as his father had affected. England must be all-in and fully prepared for a long war with the Habsburgs. Frederick, in case it wasn't obvious, was asking an awful lot through this campaign, but in case Charles didn't bite, Palatine diplomatists focused their efforts on the Lower Saxon Circle and the Danish and the Swedish kings. By the summer of 1625, Frederick was justifiably nervous. An imperial diet which would make official the transfer of his electoral title to Maximilian of Bavaria had been postponed in 1624, but it was due to reconvene in August 1625. While this diet had been advertised by Ferdinand as a chance to restore peace to the empire, Frederick was adamant that the emperor had no interest in restoring peace. Furthermore, Frederick was certain that Ferdinand would use the occasion of the innocuous-looking diet to complete the ruin of the Palatine cause and render it impossible to turn back the clock by enshrining the transfer in imperial constitutional law. No matter what way he attempted to frame the transfer, Frederick insisted that the Golden Bull alone spoke for the true order of the Empire, and that this building block of the Empire, as a fundamental constitution, neither should nor can be changed without the participation and approval of all the states of the Empire. Frederick believed that Ferdinand's true motive for calling the Diet was to strengthen more and more the party of Austria, Spain and the League, for the oppression of German liberty. As the Palatine Court's memorandum on the looming date noted on the 5th of June 1625, As for the King of Bohemia, in this they mean Frederick, as he has always protested, he also still protests sincerely that he thirsts only for peace, on the condition that it is founded not on the ruin and extirpation, such as the design of the opposing party, but on just and honest conditions, assured of his complete restitution and of a uniform peace throughout all Germany, offering in this case everything that will not be contrary to his conscience 
honour to the fundamental laws and liberty of the empire. In the meantime, King Charles was not simply sitting on his hands and waiting for news of Frederick's latest scheme. English diplomats worked hard towards two major goals in 1625. The first, following James's death, was the restoration of Frederick through a coalition of as many powers as could be recruited. The second was the more impressive, the replacement of the failed Anglo-Spanish marriage plan with an Anglo-French arrangement. Under the latter scheme, King Charles would be wedded to Henrietta Maria, the sister of King Louis XIII of France. The French were open to this arrangement, but they wouldn't roll over on religious issues, and for the sake of national honour, the French negotiators would demand just as good if not better terms than the Spanish had. The difference in this case was that the new king was more inclined to grant these concessions, because it was not the French that occupied the ancestral lands of a member of the royal family. Initially, at least, English public opinion wasn't overtly hostile, either to the Anglo-French cooperation or to the concept of toleration for English Catholics, but this openness wouldn't last. Tasked with bringing this marriage treaty to life and attaining a bride for Charles at long last was Sir James Hay, the first Earl of Carlisle, who landed in France to much fanfare in mid-May 1624. Not for another year would Charles be married by proxy to Henrietta Maria, and while this marital alliance was critically important both for the Stuart dynasty and for British security, it contained its share of problems and controversies over its duration. In addition, the very fact that it took a full year to conclude spoke to the genuine difficulties and disagreements which Carlyle's mission had run into, be it from Cardinal Richelieu's rise, the question of Catholic toleration, the course of the conflict, or protests over money. Notwithstanding these setbacks, after an exhausting year of diplomacy, Carlyle managed at long last to acquire the hand of the French princess. The Anglo-French marriage negotiations revealed much about the challenges facing first the tail end of King James's diplomatic efforts, and then the new beginning promised under Charles. In both cases, the two Stuart monarchs had much to prove. In his dying years, James did not wish for the final memory of his reign to be a failure, and Charles was determined not to begin his reign with a failure. But neither man proved capable, during the years of 1624-25, of bringing British power and influence to bear in Europe to any significant degree. This was not, as we've seen, from a lack of ambassadors. A veritable flood of empowered men had travelled to the relevant European capitals in the final year of James's reign, with entreaties from Frederick close behind them. From Venice, but with more success in Savoy, the veteran English diplomat Sir Isaac Wake sent home regular dispatches on the viability of the hoped-for alliance between such mid-European states, as they were called, as Savoy, Venice, Lorraine, the Dutch and the Swiss. Ambassadors, opined one contemporary early in King James's reign, should have knowledge of many things, especially of philosophy, moral and politic, and before all other, Roman civil law. And, moreover, a knowledge of histories will greatly help him, which, besides the pleasure of it, will increase in him wisdom and judgment in the affairs of his charges, and will make him not to be astonished at anything. The reality for King James's diplomats, unfortunately, was that they were chronically underpaid and suffered much for it on the expectation that they would be richly rewarded with office when they returned home. 
This underinvestment in the Jacobean diplomatic service was a symptom of the depleted treasury which Queen Elizabeth had left to her successor after so many years of war with the Spanish and Irish. The shortage of funds for English ambassadors verged on worse than embarrassing at times, especially when it was known that their Spanish counterparts, whatever the shortcomings of those administrations, always ensured their representatives were well provided for, prompting one Englishman to comment that God send us some taste of the like. Amidst the concerns for the security of their correspondence and the often maddening delays in reply were the further vexations than one would not have enough money to put on a suitable display in hosting, networking, or, in the more extreme cases, even eating. Englishmen did what they could to survive these conditions, with one receiving a loan from Count Gondomar before he arrived in London, another receiving a gift from the Spanish which cleared his substantial debts, and another selling off his lands to make ends meet while he languished thousands of miles away in a foreign capital. When examining the grand scope of palatine diplomacy or the whims of British kings, it's sometimes easy to forget that real people facing silent challenges did battle in these foreign capitals for influence and agreement with fewer resources than we might expect. The life of an English ambassador, indeed, was far from glamorous in the early 17th century. As the historian Morris Lee Jr. concluded on the question, though, the reasons for such shortcomings were first of all money, and then the king's inability either to secure or apportion this money appropriately. Lee wrote, It was an age of talented diplomatists. If no Englishman displayed the kind of ability that has made the Pyrrhus Gondomar the ideal 17th century ambassador in the eyes of posterity, many of them compare favourably enough with most of their continental counterparts. A number of the successes of the Jacobean foreign policy were owing to them and some of the failures. Most historians have weighed that policy in the balance and found it wanting. If this be a just judgment, then the responsibility lies much more with the government in London than with its professional agents in the field. British diplomacy nonetheless worked to successfully conclude an alliance which would reduce their overall military and financial commitment and guarantee Frederick's restoration. In September 1625, the Treaty of Southampton was signed between the English and Dutch, whereby both powers elected to cooperate offensively and defensively to free the Netherlands from Spain and restore Frederick by force of arms. Could this latest Anglo-Dutch effort produce fruit? Not quite, for its major export was the aforementioned Cadiz expedition, which failed miserably. By this point, Britain had entered the war against the Spanish, as her vehemently anti-Spanish people had desired, but when push came to shove, these same English people were largely unwilling to make the necessary sacrifices. This, coupled with some further unfortunate misunderstandings, would prove fatal in the end for King Charles. Before autumn 1625, the King of Sweden had also abandoned the idea of war for Denmark, for the moment at least and opted instead to resume the war against his Polish cousin in Livonia. The Palatine family thus closed ranks with the Dutch, as Frederick Henry married Amalia von Solms, the daughter of Frederick's late courtier. By blood, Frederick Henry, the stadtholder of the Dutch armies, was Frederick's uncle, but the two men of closer age got on much better than had Frederick with the late Maurice of Orange. Frederick's family received a grand new house in The Hague for their property portfolio, but independent Dutch initiatives in Frederick's name were, for the moment at least, 
superseded by the planned cooperation between England, the Dutch and Denmark. During the autumn and winter of 1625, negotiations between these three powers increased. Christian IV of Denmark had become eager to intervene militarily in Germany, both for the sake of Protestantism and to ensure that the bishoprics set for his sons weren't seized by agents of the emperor. Yet Christian would not move without sufficient monetary and military support. This support wasn't forthcoming from the French or either of the Italian powers, but Charles did provide a gift of £46,000 to the Danish king, who, lest we forget, was also his uncle, along with promises for a monthly subsidy of £30,000. That Charles would later squirm and then wriggle his way out of this commitment wasn't apparent in the optimistic atmosphere of late 1625. In December 1625 indeed, the Hague Alliance, which had been so long hoped for, was finally signed. By its terms, the Dutch, English and Danish agreed to cooperate militarily in 1626 and to restore Frederick to the Palatinate as one. This plan and the Hague Alliance that went along with it was the strongest commitment from Frederick's allies that he had yet received, but the Elector Palatine knew better than to place all trust in its success. He had been disappointed before, and he had watched as generalissimos with grand ambitions had crumbled before the challenges of isolation, lack of funds and want of forage. Indeed, only recently had he seen the perennial loser, Ernst of Mansfeld, lose once again thanks to those very shortcomings. Still though, with these agreements concluded, Frederick's cause was provided with a considerable shot in the arm, which promised a great deal. He declared himself satisfied, but all three powers had their own reasons for joining themselves together, aside from the noble quest to restore justice to the Palatinate. The volume of spats and the extent to which each power managed to provide their own interpretation of their responsibilities in the alliance didn't bode well. But for the moment at least, a common fear of the Habsburgs and the common goal of undermining them in several key areas held the Hague Alliance together. That the Hague Alliance was, at core, brittle and not built to last was confirmed with the first serious defeat of the cause the following year. But for the moment at least, the Hague Alliance resembled something of a victory for Frederick, who had refused to capitulate to the Emperor or to retire into obscurity. His tenacity had kept the Palatine cause alive and brought it here to new heights, but it also prolonged the now distant Bohemian Revolt, and it threatened worse disasters if the conflict between Emperor and Elector was not soon solved. If Frederick hoped for such a quick resolution, though, he was also to be disappointed. Over two decades of the most desperate, destructive, weighted conflicts remained to be fought. By the end of the process, neither Frederick nor his imperial foe would be left standing. 1625 must be viewed to some degree as a turning point in the Thirty Years' War. The year did not represent, as the signatories of the Hague Alliance surely hoped, the turning of the Habsburg tide. For the next few years, and until the arrival of the 1630s, the Habsburgs and Emperor Ferdinand especially were to become so powerful as to defy all expectations, but this feat was only accomplished by significantly raising the stakes. It was then, after the stakes had been sufficiently raised, that Cardinal Richelieu accepted the necessity in immediately preparing France for whole-scale military intervention in the Empire against both Austria and Spain. To aid his king in this noble quest, Cardinal Richelieu would rely upon the military prowess of the King of Sweden. 
a Protestant and a military genius by all accounts, to fight the Emperor and the Calvinist Dutch Republic to fight the Spanish. Any semblance of a religious war would vanish thereafter as the conflict became a power struggle between the two coalitions. In the process, more than outgrowing the Bohemian or Palatine roots from which the conflict had originally sprung. As we alluded to earlier, this fusing of interests among the anti-Habsburg coalition was only made possible with the ascent of the Holy Roman Emperor to the summit of his powers, to the extent that this triple alliance had no choice other than to cooperate to the end in their mission to lay the Habsburgs low. Historians are united in interpreting the latter half of the 1620s as one of supreme Habsburg triumph on the battlefield, within society and in the church. It will be our task in the next several episodes to account for this ascendancy and to paint a picture of Habsburg triumph unequalled in that dynasty's history. While it did represent the height of the Habsburg success, this era also represented the period of victory which came before the fall. In the next episode, we have passed a watershed mark and we delve into a new section of our 30 Years War series by examining the motives, dreams and likelihood of success for the Danish king Christian IV. From this point, the period of the Bohemian War and its Palatine elements are effectively at an end. What we see instead from 1626 onwards is an era of coalitions, and that is where our narrative will venture next. I hope you'll join me for that history, friends, but until then, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 32 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening and for supporting this show in whatever way you do, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.